place it comfortably. So I think we're all well settled into the routine of session by now. You can feel it settling more and more. Everyone's sitting really well. Um, title of this talk, Beginner's Mind and the Heart Sutra. What's Beginner's Mind got to do with the Heart Sutra? Um, I would imagine many of you um, have read the book or are familiar with the book Thin Mind, Beginner's Mind, which was written by Suzuki Roshi. It was a bestseller back in about the 1970s. And Suzuki Roshi, not to be confused with DT Suzuki, um, was the abbot of the, and founder of the Zen Centre of San Diego, uh, San, uh, San Francisco, sorry. And um, he was a very, very well-loved teacher, very, very simple man who uh, was a Soto teacher and um, really seemed to embody what Zen was about rather than having too many fancy words, but he embodied it in his being and in his experience and his actions. And the title of the book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, may be a bit confusing to some people because it might, some people might interpret, oh, the Zen mind over here and then this beginner's mind over there and this Zen mind is some kind of wise mind or profound mind and then this beginner's mind. It's not my, my understanding of, of the, the title. The title would be clearer if it was Zen mind is beginner's mind. Uh -huh. that's, the, that's the meaning of the book. And as he describes beginner's mind, he says... In the beginner's minds, there's many possibilities, but in the expert's mind, there are very few. Mm -hmm. And so a Zen mind is this, what we cultivate is this beginner's mind that's just open, open to life as it is without preconceptions and expectations, etc., that we project onto it. So our task is to, um, to, to find that beginner's mind which we've never really lost, really, but our Zen practice is about um, unlearning a lot of this cluttered abstraction that we have in our mind, which creates a kind of film of delusion and return to a beginner's mind, almost like a child's mind in, in the way that we live our life. So what has this got to do with the Heart Sutra? Mm -hmm. um, as you all know, the, um, the Heart Sutra is a very um, central, foundational Buddha Sutra to Zen practice. You know, it's recited perhaps more than any other sutra in Zen. How come it's this sutra rather than others that we focus on so much? It's a very, very interesting book. Some of you may have read it or be familiar with it or studied it, a book called The Heart Sutra, which was written maybe, I think, about... 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, um, by Red Pine. That's his literary name. I, I don't recall his real, his his um, his um, worldly name, um, but his Dharma name is uh, Red Pine. And he's a very interesting scholar, very thorough scholar. What's very interesting about the words? You know, when we get a scholar like Red Pine um, informing of this is it's the Prajna Paramita Heart Sutra. Prajna usually translates as wisdom. Mm -hmm. um, but the word pr 
prajna, this is very important, means pre-knowledge. So it's the pre-knowledge sutra, right? It's the beginner's mind sutra. And he makes that link right in the, right in the very beginning. Um, that the Heart Sutra, if we embody the Heart Sutra, um, that is beginner's mind, pre-knowledge, prajna. And the other opposite to that in, in the Pali is jhana, which means knowledge. Mm-hmm. And um, the Theravadans use the word jhanas in terms of stages you go through you know, in meditation practice. We don't really talk about stages in, in Zen. In, in Zen, to be true to the Heart Sutra, there are no stages. Mm-hmm. Um, so Zen is very much in that pre-knowledge experience of life, beginner's mind, not philosophical, not over-scholastic. We can, we can look at that and try and make sense of it in an abstract way, but that's not what the practice is really about. Just as in the same way, understanding musical theory is not what playing music or listening to music is about. And the Heart Sutra, in a way, is a is directing or directing us a sign as a signpost to how we can live our life rather than explaining our life. And as Red Pine uh, states in his book, is that the Heart Sutra? We don't know who wrote it. Just like we, which is really good that we don't know who wrote it, isn't it? It's got, it's got no author, right? Um, just like the uh, the cloud of unknowing, you know, the Christian text has no author. Well, the Heart Sutra has no author in keeping with its spirit, right? We don't know who he is or she is. And um, so, uh, what what he was what. Red Pine is, is um, stating is that the Heart Sutra was, was uh, written as a counter to the Abhidharma and the Abhidharma I can't say I've read it myself, I've tried to a few times and my eyes glaze over but I, I recognise now from conversations I had with um, teachers like Robert Aitken and so on and other, other Zen teachers and friends I had along the way there's always this kind of scathing kind of um, humorous kind of response to the Abhidharma when it came up, oh, the Abhidharma, you know. And now I understand why, because it's such an elaborate, it's kind of like Dharma analysis. You might have psychoanalysis. Well, it's kind of like Dharma analysis and it's sort of the, the psychological understanding of how the Dharma works in a very philosophical, abstract, um, psychological kind of manner. So it's a matrix of looking at all the different factors that make up delusion and what make up seeing reality as it really is. But people study this, you know, elaborately as a, a philosophical text, you know, and, and put great effort into it. And then the heart sutra comes along and says there's no scan, there's no eye, ears, nose, tongue, body, no, no enlightenment, no, 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 any Buddhist concept whatsoever. So in a sense, it's a kind of the heart sutra is a kind of a demolition job on the Abhidharma. It's like wipe it all away, and instead of trying to understand the Dharma through concepts, understand it through direct experience. 
And so as you all know, its theme that runs through it all the way is emptiness is form and form is emptiness. And if you look at Cohen study as a practice in Zen, all Cohen study is really a, a, a play on that theme. Almost every Cohen I can think of is a play on that theme of emptiness is form and form is emptiness. Um, sometimes um, emptiness is best described through stories rather than trying to explain it, which leads to more confusion usually. But there's many stories in Zen which gives us a hint of what emptiness is. And I'm choosing two of them, or two, two koans. And one is, um, it's a, a commentary in a koan where um, uh, a senior student, someone who's fairly experienced in Zen practice, says to his teacher, it's a way of describing the awakened life, said it's like a donkey looking at a well. Mm -hmm. Imagine a donkey looking at a well. Not too much thinking going on there. Mm -hmm. And then his teacher said, well, that's pretty good, but that's only about three quarters of it. And then the senior student said to the teacher, well, how would you say it, your reverence? And he said, it's more like a well looking at a donkey. Uh-huh. Um, it's pointing towards no thinking, no, no mind. Uh-huh. And like most koans, they're playful. Right? People often think koans are these very serious dialogues, but they're, they're mostly very playful in their in the manner, and that's getting into the spirit of what life is, playfulness. Another well-known koan which points to the emptiness of the mind is Bodhidharma pacifies the mind. As you know, Bodhidharma being the founder of, of Chan or Zen in China, and um, a student comes to him and says, um, my mind is um, very disturbed. Can you put it at peace for me? Can you settle it? And, um, and Bodhidharma says, well, bring me your mind and I'll put it to rest for you. Okay. And then the student says, I've been searching for my mind everywhere, but I can't find it. And Bodhidharma says, I've put it to rest for you. Uh-huh. We don't find a true self. We don't find a mind. We don't find an answer in Zen and go, oh, yeah, we've got it, got the answer now, everything's fine. You know? um, it doesn't work like that. It's like realising there's no mind. And it's like there's a searcher looking for an answer, you know, that the searcher is the answer. Um, by the way, this story, when you reflect on it, has enormous implications for um, mental health in our day and age. Um, because as a psychologist and others of you who work in the field, you get so many people coming along wanting to, wanting to explain their suffering. Like, give me a word, give me a diagnosis, give me a label, give me some kind of theory that will help me understand my depression or my anxiety or whatever. And there's so much, particularly since the internet, there's so much preoccupation with, oh, maybe I'm on the autism spectrum or maybe I've got ADHD or maybe I've got this or that. 
And it's all, all looking for explanation, as though an explanation is going to make you go, aha, right, right, now, problem solved. It doesn't do that at all. It just gives you an explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, but we get so caught up in explanations and we divide our mind between a, a searcher for the answer and the answer. And it's this division in the mind of searching for something and not finding the answer and searching and searching and searching and getting anxious about it creates division, creates a disturbance in the mind. Just like in the story, you know, 2,000 years ago with Bodhidharma. All of that creates a disturbance in the mind. When you stop searching and you just rest in the moment, no problem. Mm-hmm. Well-being emerges, charged with well-being. A lot of people have a lot of difficulty um, having even a conceptual understanding of what emptiness is. And that's why in Zen we use a lot of stories to to point the way. Um, but the best way of understanding it, the bit intellectually, through words, is through, I believe, through Thich Nhat Hanh, who said in, in understanding emptiness, if, if something's empty, it's empty of something, you know, like a, a glass of water, it's going to be empty of water. Mm-hmm. So what, when we're talking about emptiness, what, what is it that's, that it's going to be empty of? Mm-hmm. And he says separation. Everything is interconnected. Everything is in ecological connection with everything else in life. Nothing is separate into a separate self. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it's form, but everything's like a stream, like a river. Everything's interconnected like a, a rainforest. You can't separate it anywhere. Mm-hmm. But we do, and we use words to, to separate things out. Um, when, in fact, then they're not separated out, and uh, we get we get caught in that kind of delusion. So it's empty of separateness, and so we can say, as we say in in a in a Zen poem, um, first there is a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is. Uh-huh. And if you go out into the countryside, you know, into a national park, yeah, you can see the form of a mountain. But is that mountain separate from the rest of the landscape? You wouldn't, you couldn't call it a mountain unless there was valleys and a sky, you know, and all the other formations around. So yes, there's a mountain there, we can give it a name, but it's not actually separate from everything else. So our experience through the journey of form and emptiness there's the form of the mountain, but then there's another way of seeing it in this broader context, that there is no mountain, but then we have to come back into every late day life, and there is no mountain, it's got a name, and we can climb it, Mm -hmm. and we can come back down, and we can see the view from top of the mountain. So there, there is a mountain, there is no mountain, there is a mountain. So what arises through Zen practice um, through not understanding the heart sutra intellectually, but by embodying 
the Heart Sutra, is what we frequently refer to in Zen as don't know mind. Don't know mind. Beginner's mind, don't know mind. Prajna mind, the mind that's pre-conceptual, pre-knowledge. And that's kind of like the base that we work from. And of course, in everyday life, we all need, we live in the relative world and we all need opinions about certain things and so on to get by in life. You know, all of us in our professions, if you just turned up and just someone asked you a question and said, don't know, right, we wouldn't last very long in our jobs, would we? We have to have an informed opinion and a way ahead. But, it, but, what, but nevertheless, our Zen practice comes from that place where there's don't know mind but yes, I can form a view or opinion or position out of this. But, but what arises out of that is that we, we hold on to opinions lightly and tightly with a beginner's mind rather than on the, the fixed certainty of everything in our life. There's a bit of a parallel to this. It's not exactly the same, but there's a parallel in... Um, in contemporary psychology that's coming through around understanding intelligence. And intelligence has typically been measured by IQ, an IQ test, which really in the main is measuring our ability to abstract, abstraction analysis, etc. And um, and it places a high value on that. We place a high value on that in our culture. Um, but in other cultures, um, more like indigenous cultures, there's often more of an emphasis on, on the concrete and the specific rather than a weighting towards the abstract. And we, we live in a world where there's specific things, concrete things, iPhones, floors, people, chairs, wallabies, trees, there's all those things. And then we can go into abstracting about things with theories or concepts and so on. And in modern psychology, what is considered to be, you know, the best way we can actually use our, our mind, this gift of mind, is what's called agile mind or agile thinking. And with agile thinking, you can shift between the concrete and the abstract and the abstract and the concrete. You can flip between the two, backwards and forwards. You're not stuck in the concrete and you're not stuck in the abstract, right? So you just move you segue from one to the other in a very smooth kind of way and that's what agile thinking is. Um, it's not the same as what we mean in Zen, but in, in Zen and Cohen study we kind of shift between form and emptiness and emptiness and form. There's this agility of mind um, that comes in um, understanding life. One of the reasons we get stuck on fi fixed ideas and fixed opinions and so on, because human beings have this great need to predict the future. Uh -huh. And why do we have a, a great need to predict the future? Because we want certainty. Right? We want to make sure the food supply is there and everyone's around everything in its place and then we'll, we'll know where we stand as we're moving forward into the future. So our brains have been developed to, to predict the future very, very well. And our survival, to some degree, is, is dependent on that. But it can become a fixation and it become a great source of um, anxiety trying to predict.
predict the future and control the future all the time. And um, that's why um, we get so stuck in, in conceptual understandings and fixed conceptual understandings of things. Um, R.H. Blythe, who was one of Robert Aitken's first teachers in a prison camp in Guam during the Second World War, um, he, says he, he, he has a chapter in one of his books called Concrete and the Abstract. And uh, he says basically that Zen is a life of action. You know, it's only really concrete things that matter. We use abstractions. But he says at the end of this little quote, beware of abstractions. If tell, Zen tells you anything, beware of abstractions. Right. Think abstractions like communism and capitalism lead to people killing one another. Right? It's crazy when we get when we take those things as realities and identify with them. What the Heart Sutra also states, about halfway through it, it says, no hindrance in the mind, therefore no fear. Or one could even put it the other way around, no fear, therefore no hindrance. So what's that referring to? Um, there's a, a, an old Zen book, which is a favourite of mine, written by um, like a 12th, 14th century Zen teacher whose name escapes me at the moment, called The Unfettered Mind. Right, that's the mind of no hindrance. And it's no surprise that, um, particularly in Japan, um, that Zen training often goes hand in hand with some form of art, you know, or like um, tea ceremony or playing the shakuhachi or um, uh, uh, pottery, things like that, painting. And these activities are a way of not only demonstrating no mind, the mind that's not stuck anywhere and has no hindrance, which is unfettered, it's also a practice which cultivates that unfettered mind as well. And I know many of us here um, play musical instruments, you know, or dance, or do various kind of things which are, which are artistic in some kind of way. And in many ways, it doesn't matter what it is, really, but they all can be um, uh, applications of Zen practice to cultivate this sense of flow of experience and no mind and no hindrance in the way that we do things. So, for example, you know, with me learning Irish music and a flute, you can see over the years as you do it that in, in many ways you're, you're outside of yourself doing it to begin with and you're judging whether you're doing it right or wrong and you're all sort of fingers and thumbs. And then as you get more of the body memory, you just have to trust that your body knows what to do, particularly with Irish music, which is played so fast. And if you start to think about where to put your finger or your thumb or what, what note comes next, well, forget it. You know, you, it's already moved, it's gone, right? And so these, these arts really can be used to help um, put out our same meditation practice into, into application in everyday life. And it's like we have to get out of trying to control things with the mind Trust the body, 
right? And go with the flow of it and don't be too concerned about making mistakes mm -hmm. and stepping outside of the process and and um, then interfering in it. So all, all of those kind of arts help with that, that flowing, freeing up kind of process. And it's an application of, of no mind. So many, in so many instances in our life, I can see it in my own life as it has matured through Zen practice over decades, is that instead of being out of the flow and stepping out of the process and explaining it or assessing it or trying to make sense of it or whatever or correct it, it's just you, you make a leap of faith into the flow of experience, right, and just go with it. Um, Alan Watts, who was one of my favourite writers, said something along the lines that the purpose of, that life is a flow of experience and the purpose of life is just to jump in and go with the flow of it. I know it sounds very hippie-like, but go with the flow, man. That's, that's a good thing. You know, it's good advice, uh -huh. as corny as it might sound. And when there's no hindrance in the mind, we're there with the flow of experience. But if, every time we jump out of it, it's like we're, we're disconnected. Like if you're playing the flute and you jump out of it, and you think, what next? What note comes next? Well, it's gone. Mm -hmm. Apply that to meditation too. As your meditation matures over years, you may go from sort of correcting your mind all the time to come back to the present moment and the breath or the sound. And it's fun. It's like there's a constant sort of observational witness standing back, you know, evaluating how it's all going all the time, you know. Which may, maybe that's not such a bad thing to begin with, um, because you're trying to do it well. But as you as you mature in practice, it's like that that evaluation evaluation process that's sort of outside of the flow seems to just go back into the background, fades, into, and you're just breathing, just you're just sitting there um, with no mind, beginner's mind no idea of where you're going to or where you're coming from and and you're just there in, ex, in the experience not even not even evaluating whether you're meditating well or not right? and uh, that's what we start to, to shift into over time the kind of trust of that experience so in many ways um, the heart sutra from a linguistic point of view at least anyway. The Heart Sutra is a matter of turning nouns into verbs. Right? So we have all these, we, we put everything in all these little categories, enlightenment, delusion, scar, five skandhas, you know, sensations, feelings, etc. And then we think of them as being things. You know, they're, they're frozen into a thing, like an ice block, that's what it is. Um, but the Heart Sutra is really saying to us that there's no nouns anywhere. You know, our, our sensation is like a river of sensations, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. You know, our feeling is like a feeling, a, a river of feelings. Our consciousness is a stream of consciousness. So everything is just streaming. 
And all these different skandhas are not separate rivers or streams, they're all merging together in one big stream mm-hmm, that we call me. Mm-hmm. Or in a larger sense, we call life, right? Because there's no me, right? So everything is just streaming all the time, streaming all the time. A um, couple of little quotes or to end up with. One of the sayings that you'll find on the harm sometimes in Japanese temples, which follows the Heart Sutra, completely freed from yes and no, great emptiness charged within, no questions, no answers, like a fish, like a fool. Uh-huh. That's in practice right there. And in and in 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 modern music, or at least music of maybe a century ago, remember that that old um, um, uh, Black American spiritual song, Old Man River. Um, if I remember the words, something like that. That old man river. He don't know nothing. Just keeps rolling along. Uh-huh. That that's in a nutshell, in a playful way, um, what the experience of doing this um, arises. It's just that old river just flowing along. Doesn't say much, doesn't know nothing. Uh Just keep rolling along.